information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Welcome back to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine on Peds Toxicology. Again, today we're joined by Dr. Matt Moretti, Brad Johnston, and Paul Boackle, along with myself, Will Appleby, talking a little bit more about Peds Tox. Hope you enjoy. When we talk about medication-induced tox, the first thing I wrote in here on this outline was uh, the grandparent Skittles. Uh, it's for a reason. There's Skittle parties a lot of teenagers used to sure. do all the time. They dump a bunch of pills in there, see what kind of reaction we can get out of it. Taste the rainbow. Yeah. Um, medication induced a lot of them are truly polypharmacy there's not sometimes every once in a while a kid for example will get into a certain pill bottle jar certain someone's left out or may only be tylenol or what or claritin or whatever it is but a lot of times these are true polypharmacy cases so understanding what they're involved in or what they're not but also treating them symptomatically based off of what it is when y'all think of all the the grandparent stuff that kids get into first thing that bothers me the most is probably blood thinners is one of them um and then the next stuff is all the cardiac jazz all the the calcium channel blockers beta blockers anything else talking about blood blood thinners does that have y'all seen that before does that bother you when you think of those like the zarelto's the 10a oh, yeah. coumadins or all that kind of stuff first thing that comes to my mind that that's hugely concerning to me um you know both of my grandparents growing up, I could remember them talking about like it was the neatest thing that, oh, well, they now have an extended release this and extended release that. And yeah. I think especially in the pediatric population, but just in general, all these extended release medicines, okay, well, that's awesome. You know, it's, it's great for the person taking it, but for the accidental ingestions, for the whatever it is, a half a half a million kids are exposed to it a, you know every year whatever it is you know that extended release they look normal at first presentation or even at an hour or two hours and you know to your point with the calcium channel blockers you know it might be 6 12 24 hours later when that extended release fully starts kicking their tail um and whether it's you know coags or whatever it is just extended release medicines in general kind of give me chest pain with with all these ingestions just i think people tend to like we mentioned earlier poison control having to tell people you know hey you need to watch them for at least six hours these extended release could be a 12 or 24 hour later thing yeah i mean extended releases most every time we're going to recommend admission um and honestly sometimes we're going to recommend a long well, admission yeah um you know people don't think about you know, Haldol has a 72-hour half-life, so uh, for sure. Um, extended release can be real complicated. They add an, an interesting layer to a lot of the conversation with regards to tox. Um, but, yeah, there's never a circumstance where I've really seen any sort of toxic drug that has an extended release product that should ever go home. Um, pretty much is not going to be recommended. Blood thinners, uh, when you brought that up, it, it's kind of weird. Um I've seen a lot of warfarin overdoses, um, and for the most part, um, I think I've only ever given somebody to reverse a blood thinner once. Um, usually, you know, as long as there's not really a trauma, uh, and as long as they're not like bleeding from their gums or, you know, their eyes or something like that. We try not to give them additional medicines to kind of muddy things up because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes giving people protamine and giving people uh, a bunch of other stuff gets complicated. Warfarin's kind of a different creature because uh, giving somebody IV vitamin K is not that big of a deal. But even then, we don't recommend it very often. So a lot of these kids, what we do is we watch them. Um, we get coags. Depending on the half-life of the drug, you know, we may get a coag and admit them or may get a coag and tell them they need to go back and see their doc in two days and get another set of coags. Like most relatively minor warfarin ingestions, I'm gonna get a coag today just because honestly, we know that it takes 48 hours for an INR to really change from warfarin anyway. 
Uh, and then I'm going to go tell him to go see somebody in a couple of days and eat some leafy green vegetables in between. Uh, <laughs> but like most of them, you know, unless they are actively bleeding, uh, most of the time I, I don't think I've ever reversed anything or been told to reverse something. The ones that scare me are that I'm glad you brought it up is how long is the onset of the drug? So oh, yeah. if they took, if they got, I'm throwing out numbers here, but if they took 10 of grandma's Coumadin pills, yeah. And then they don't have something, and then four days later, now yeah. they're bleeding out because they fell down, and yeah. now we have this weird picture of they're bleeding from every orifice mm -hmm. and this, that, and the other. It's the the not following up and realizing, hey, some of those medicines take for truly the liver to start playing with it. It takes two or three days. Yeah. So what happened two or three days ago? So you have this trauma picture, but then you have this trauma picture that doesn't make any sense, and it's really a tox thing. Yeah. On top of it. Um, that's purely out of an experience I had yeah. myself, but they're most of the time they don't have to be reversed, but it's one of those things. If you get something that's weird, a weird PT that's way out. Yeah. And then, hey, well, they, they take medicines every day or what, who lives in the house? Well, somebody's on Elquis. Yeah. And, All right. Well, have you been taking some of the Elquis and thinking it was nighttime gummies and it's not those kind of questions yeah. that come to mind. Skittle parties are definitely a scary thing for us for a bunch of different of these meds. We see a lot of people, um, for me, as a as a kid doctor, I worry a lot about the the anti tachycardics, so like betas and calciums. And then, but one of the things we get into a lot with these kids is uh, grandma's diabetic medication. Metformin's fine. Like honestly, metformin doesn't do too much to you. If if that's all they're taking, then I don't even care. They deserve the headache they get mm -hmm. uh, and the bellyache they get. But if they're taking gliburide and glipizide mm -hmm. and all those things, like um, those kids can get pretty sick from it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the scary thing to me is always the doc that like takes one of those kids, gets a glucose a few hours later and it looks fine. And so they think that it's fine to send them home. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those glipizide type medicines, those are like, they don't cause hypoglycemia for like 12 hours. Uh, so most of the time we admit these kids and sometimes you see their glucose just tank a day in. Uh, and all of a sudden their glucose is 35 and they're like barely responsive. And so, you know, those ones we take real seriously. Um, any of those medicines, uh, sulfonylureas get, every all of these we get admitted. Any anti, any diabetic medication except for metformin, we're pretty much gonna bring in. Um, the betas and the calcium scare me. Um, they're still ones, they are in the one pill can kill category. When, mm -hmm. when we talk about um, medication talks in kids, a single adult, adult dose in a child under, you know, 10, 20 kilos can be fatal. Um, and so those are the ones that scare me the most. You know, grandma dropped one calcium channel block pill on the floor. Yep. Uh, and, you know, the seven month old's crawling around and picks the thing up and puts it in their mouth. And, you know, they're in the news the next day. Yep. So those ones are pretty scary. Um, calcium channel blockers and beta blockers are really big deals. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about them for a minute, um, if that's okay with everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, only thing I was going to add on the on the coag stuff is uh, I have seen a few uh, tox kids, and it was rat poison, mm -hmm. and it it wasn't anything obviously yeah. like we talked about reversible. But you know they were like, well, I don't know, but I didn't see any medications, and you get their coags back, and their coags are out. It's like, is there anything in the garage and you know, open trays of rat poison in the garage. And they just didn't think about that as a medication. Right. And they didn't think, you know, yeah, that's, but that's, that's, straight, that's yeah, straight Coumadin. Um, as far as let's do betas first. Yeah. So, uh, the cool thing is for me, for the most part, I, you can relatively speaking, kind of imagine them in the same general category as far as management goes with a couple of different exceptions. Cause unfortunately a lot of times, especially if they're coming from a Skittle party, you have no effing clue. Like no. what color was, I don't even know. I put 17 of them in my mouth. Mm -hmm. uh, so betas uh, don't really, um, betas are gonna cause potentially some hypoglycemia, which is the big kind of red flag for them. Yep. Uh, and so if you've got a patient, the scary thing is if they took a lot of this, this looks a heck of a lot like an opioid ingestion, right? So they're going to be bradycardic. They're going to have respiratory depression. They're going to have CNS depression. They're going to be hypotensive. Um, 
but they're going to be hypoglycemic. And so that's like a big tipping point for us. Um, you should always worry about alcohol in a teenager because that'll look a lot the same and they'll be hypoglycemic as well. Um, but, you know, these are kids that are going to be really profoundly bradycardic and really profoundly hypertensive uh, if they had a, any substantial ingestion. Um, calcium salts, well, so ABCs for everybody, right? So always every single medication that's on this list, and it's one of the reasons why I say tox is really hard and tox is really easy. Um, because you just do the same thing for everything. So if they have respiratory depression, CNS depression, you don't have an intact airway if the patient's GCS sucks, right? So um, intubate these patients. It is honestly somewhat helpful for especially bad calciums to just intubate them early if they have really bad respiratory and cal um, brain uh, CNS depression because it removes one of the biggest barriers to effective treatment. Um, but giving them getting their airway under control um making sure you try to get an iv access get some fluids going on board but then calcium salts huge deal uh to kind of help with some of this um hie can be really helpful mm -hmm. uh, we talk about hyperinsulinemia euglycemia therapy giving them a dose of insulin followed by like a, a slug of d10 uh, or d25 uh, can be really really helpful and then early, early EKGs and serial EKGs on these patients. Like if you suspect even the slightest bit of concern that this kid got into one of these channel blockade drugs, um, really quickly getting them that first EKG, seeing where you are and keep going back to it. Because it's, it's amazing sometimes how rapidly their QTC just like stretches out and stretches out. Uh, and at some point it's going to stretch out enough mm -hmm. that they're just, they're going to go into yeah. a bad rhythm and then you're in trouble. So in, in talking about insulin, is your recommendation basically like double what like a DKA rate would be on an insulin infusion for high dose? So usually we get the pulse doses, honestly. So a lot of times what I'm going to do is I'm going to have hit them with calcium gluconate first. Um, I'm going to give them 100 grams per kilo or milligrams per kilo of calcium gluconate uh, as a first right out the gate drug. It's cardioprotective. Mm -hmm. It helps some, replaces some of the lost kind of electrolytes, um, but it's it stabilizes the cardiac tissue. So it helps me in anything else I do. And then if we're talking like adolescents or bigger people, I'm going to give 10 units of insulin followed by some dextrose. And I'm going to watch and see what happens. And then 30 minutes later, I'm going to do it again. You're never using anything long acting. You're, you're always using log and you're not injecting skin. You're always giving it through the IV. You're just trying to get her, um, you're just trying to get them fixed, excuse me. Um, and you do it short acting, watch and do it again. Eventually they'll go hyperglycemic if they're not already hyperglycemic from the beta blocker. Uh, and so that's why you're always following with dextrose. You're always following with dextrose. A lot um, of people, when they start talking about kids using the HIE, so uh, I think the smallest I've ever been a part of was an 18-month-old, and we were using the 0.1 yeah. units per kilo. Yeah, um, and that's, for, that's right, for, for small bodies. For, yeah, for push doses far of it, and then, honestly, if you don't have D10 in the room, you'll go find some. Sure, yeah. You <laughs> can make D10. Like make if it. You're, if, make you're it. An adult, if you're an adult center that doesn't ever carry D10, because a lot of places yeah. don't, uh, get your D50 and then just dilute it down to yep. D10. It doesn't take much. And honestly, for even for very, very young pediatric patients, yes, high dextrose-containing fluids is bad for their veins, but we use D25 all the time in little kids. And mm -hmm. so you just take your D10 or your D50, you figure out one, whatever their kilogram dose is. And so they're, if they weigh 5 kilos, it's 5 mLs of D50. Mm -hmm. And then you just put 5 more mLs of water in there. And then you got D25, and that's fine. You can push that to them. That's worse. What, what are your thoughts on what glucagon fits in? Oh, so that's real controversial. Uh, <laughs> I know that that sounds that's such a nerdy thing to say. Uh, glucagon is really controversial. So glucagon has not been found in almost any major study to actually fix this mm -hmm. truly. It has been touted in the past as a good antidote for beta blockers. It does not seem to have held up as well as it seems but it's not unsafe. Mm -hmm. So honestly, like if so you- Specifically for kids you're talking about? Or period, also? period. If you look in and much of the newer literature, the effectiveness of glucagon at reversal of betas and calciums is really actually not good. Mm -hmm. It didn't really hold up in repeated study. 
but at the same time, it is not an unsafe product. It's really not bad. And so it's still, for at least betas, it's still on the list. Mm -hmm. It's still, if you go to critical care medicines, kind of guidelines for um, antihypertensive overdoses or toxicities, it's still something that you give. Mm -hmm. It may not do anything. It might, but it's not going to hurt anybody. The trick with glucagon to me, there's a couple of side effects to it that are challenging. Again, I'm I'm going to give it. If, there, if it's beta, yeah. I'm going to try it. Why, why not? It's fine. Um, dosing in adults is five milligrams. That's five vials. So from a cost standpoint, That's fair. it's usually somewhere between 100 and 100, $200 a vial. So you may not have it on an ambulance or you may not have it in your ER. You may not have enough to actually truly be effective. To do anything. Um, it does work somewhat to mitigate the effects and everything I've read, but it's only temporizing. It's not going to like get you out of the jam. It's not going to, it's not a true antidote. It doesn't like fix it long period over time. So it's one of those drugs where, okay, great. This may bad me out of a jam. It's kind of like albuterol and hyper K kind of way I think yeah. of it. The trick with it to me is glucagon. We use a lot of times for its other effects of smooth muscle relaxation. Well, if I'm worried about a cardiac protective patient that I don't want everything to go dilate, I want to increase their contractility because they are in beta blockade. Do I really want to dilate their smooth muscle at the same time? That's yeah, a question. Yeah. And then you worry about the airway side of that as well. Yeah. It can kind of create some issues, but it's overall not terrible. Um, these are people that are going to be resistant to atropine under most circumstances if these are really substantial ingestions, but that doesn't mean don't try it. It just means it's probably not going to work. Um, a lot of times people end up on infusions uh, to kind of help this. But my big dig on all of these, and this is true for both betas and calciums, if you had to intubate the patient, honestly, I go directly to transcutaneous pacing. Like if the patient was already so out of it that you had to put an airway in, the biggest barrier to transcutaneous pacing is pain um, and the need to sedate them. And you always kind of worry a little bit in somebody who's hypotensive and bradycardic to put them through the right. sedation process because we know intubating hypotensive patients is one of the worst things you can mm -hmm. do. Um, plug always, always, always epi before you intubate a hypotensive patient. Uh, spritzer if you want or the full Monty if you've got it. Um, what about vasopressor support? Which so vasopressin and beta blockade. Is no, not... no, no. Vasopressors like oh, just pure, heavier. Yeah, I, I know yeah, vasopressin and dopamine. If they're awake, yeah. they're awake um, I do epi pretty early. Um, and then you get it to a reasonable dose and then you add norepi if you need to. Um, the norepi is really just about blood pressure support. It's not going to do jack to the heart, but that's why I start with epi. Yep. Um, if they're awake, I give them atropine and calcium salts and potentially some insulin and dextrose. And then I move pretty quickly if they're not looking good to epi infusion. I don't give them push doses of epi. You know, you should have time to mix an epi bag, mm -hmm. even if it's just you're mixing a dirty epi bag, but you should have time to mix epi. Um, and so, yeah, I go on to epi infusion pretty early. Um, it's, it's really just about getting that heart rate back up because yeah. uh, their blood pressure is almost always purely related to cardiac output. Yep. Real fast, you mentioned transcutaneous pacing. A uh, couple things I want to bring up with that. One, if you're going to pace somebody, personal pet peeve of mine, make sure you put the pads in the right spot. Kids, it's real <laughs> easy. Kids, it's super easy because they're usually small enough. You only had to put it on the back and the front. That's right. Um, for adults or bigger kids, a lot of times we want to put them and it goes right through. Uh, yeah. One, it should one be the same spot for coding. As far as, as far as pacing them, if they're a bigger kid, it's sometimes a lot easier to put front and back. That's true. Um, gets you a little bit better electrical activity, gets everything working a little better. As far as some of these kids, it's not uncommon for kids or adults, if they're in a beta blocker overdose, you transcutaneous pace them for a minute. They trans Yeah. Uh, eventually, you're going to have to keep on going up. Transvenous is a thing. They may go to the cath lab. They may, may think about considering taking them to a place or, hey, a place that could flood a transvenous pacer or temporizing pacer to get yeah. them through this process. Um, I actually love transvenous pacing for adolescents, adults. It's way more complicated than little kids. Um, but yeah, it, the issue is always, um, if you're at a center that's really comfortable with transvenous pacing, you're also probably at a center that has cardiology. That doesn't want you. To and a cath lab. I, I remember distinctly, I had a guy, uh, he was 80 years old. Um, he had overdosed his own beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. I can't, I think it was beta blockers. 
uh, and he was bradycardic as a mother uh, and was like losing his mental status. And so we had called the cardiologist and I was already putting a central line. I had intentionally gone to the IJ. I had intentionally put the transcutaneous or the transvenous pacing central line in so that I could th float the wires. Mm -hmm. And the attending got the cardiologist on the phone. He's like, I'm on my way in. Don't do it. Just take him to the cath lab. And I, you know, so if the patient is not like dead, dead, um, the cardiologist probably wants to do that sure. themselves in the cath lab. So, you know, they're probably going to want to do that. And if they are dead, dead again, throwing them on transcutaneous pacing temporizes things until the cardiologist gets there. That being said, if you're out in a community setting and you don't have a cardiologist, you can come in and you are personally quite comfortable with placing the transcutaneous pacing central line in the IJ and feel very good about your ability to float that wire down into the right atrium. Like, honestly, like it's better for them in the long run than transvenous or transcutaneous stuff. So I, I have no issue with it. Uh, but it's definitely one of those things. Um, the barrier is the awake patient. Um, and so if they're awake, then you're going to have an issue. It's a challenge. Um, it is a challenge. And so unfortunately, a lot of times in pediatric hospitals, you do stuff until the patient becomes non-responsive and then you transcutaneously pace them. Problem is then they wake up. Yeah. And now you've got an awake patient getting transcutaneously paced. At that point, it's fine. At that point, you... you and they're not happy the about it. Yeah, they're getting <laughs> pissed. I've never personally been transcutaneous paced, but I've heard stories and I've seen patients. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's a fun experience. Um, it's not the same as getting defibrillated. It's a lot lower volume. How was cardioversion, Brad? I don't remember. <laughs> I did a good job. I don't <laughs> but we do usually at that point put them on sedation drugs. Um and in a lot of institutions, the standard is going to be to just go ahead and electively intubate once you get their heart rate and blood pressure back under control. Um, and then you just kind of wait the process out. Um, but those are beta blockers. The good thing is, in general, my personal experience has been that you don't get the really bad ones um, as, as much with beta blockade. Calcium is different. Calcium can be an absolute crapshoot pretty quickly um you know I, i've seen people have to get rescued with lipids for verapamil um and things like that so um calcium channel blockers are pretty bad because they don't tend to respond to any of those things the one good thing about calcium channel blockers is they tend to be hyperglycemic and so they actually and their hyperglycemia is resistant to insulin uh so you can give them insulin and you don't have mm. to you don't have to give like huge doses of dextrose as you're going through that process. That's, that's something. Matter of fact, we had a, a our toxicologist Brett Marlin came in and taught a lecture yesterday for us, and that was one of the things he mentioned with calcium channel blocker overdoses was the hyperglycemia, yeah. not having to to worry about monitoring the glucose as closely as you would with a beta blocker. Yeah, overdose. it tends to be a lot a lot better. Um, it, which in theory is a good thing because it means you can actually give them a lot more insulin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, insulin's a really helpful um, cardiac promoter in those situations, and so it can it can be a big deal. I find in these that you're you have to have them on vasopressors, but they're not going to do jack squat yeah. um, because the calcium channel has been blocked. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter how much epi you give or norepi you give, you're not going to get that back until that process is reversed. Uh, and so, and it takes a long time. Most of these drugs have really significant half-lives. Uh, and so these are people that, um, are probably going to be sicker, uh, and you are going to probably move to pacing them relatively quickly, but they're also ones who can arrest really fast. Um, it's one of those patients you, if you, they're super tricky in transport to me. They, oh yeah. They're very tenuous. You get them. Okay. I get them lined out. I get them kind of sitting there still in a bed. Great. Now they're in an ER bed. Now I got to get them to a defensive center because we're going to try to do CCRT, CRRT or we're trying to go to ECMO or yeah. try to get something to get it out of their system, uh, try to dialyze it out depending on what drug it is. But if you are the second you move them or the second, for example, you manipulate their vent changes or something that ticks off the heart just a little bit, they will crump. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those you we talk about resuscitate for an invading all the time, but resuscitate for you move them. Even if you're giving them extra stuff. So, Hey, they're on an epi infusion. They're going at uh, two mics right now. Cool. Up at three, just give you a little bit extra buy a little extra buffer before you move somebody or slide somebody around. 
they're very, very challenging. Uh, talking about pacing a lot here. Just want to quick, quick plug. It, it's a very challenging process to swap somebody from one pacer to the next. Mm -hmm. It's something to be done slow. Um, you should be start them on to have them on this pacer. It's working its factory of like <coughs> electrical and mechanical capture. Um, you'll see us adult patients. We will throw art line at somebody really fast. Mm -hmm. Even in pediatrics, in this case, I highly recommend an art line if you're capable or have the ability to do it, so you can ensure that mechanical capture and electrical capture are still there all the time. Um, when you're swapping somebody over, they're working great on this pacer. I'm going to the next. Slowly increase your pacer until you get up. Um, look at what your amperage is. Usually about one third is where I, I'm on my new pacer. I'm at one third of where I am on my old one. Mm -hmm. All right, now I can start backing off and I can start slowly doing this at the same time. It's a simultaneous thing, but trying to make, to maintain the electrical and the mechanical capture. Uh, we just said about how the second you manipulate them, these patients are so tenuous, they'll crump on you. Swapping that pacer is one of those crucial moments of mm -hmm. is it gonna work or not. It, it can be a really sketchy thing i had a friend who was an rt years ago whose kid came in as a calcium channel walker and it was just it was a tough experience for everybody um <clears throat> but yeah these are the ones that you kind of have to keep an eye out for and fortunately they tend to lose their mental status a little bit quicker and so you can potentially move to pacing more quickly um, but just keep an eye out um for the ones that are non-dehydropyridines, um, they are in general pretty lipophilic. Uh, and so critical care medicine a few years ago added lipids to the rescue for cardiac arresting calcium channel blockers. Um, lipids are kind of a controversial subject in toxicology. Some people are absolutely huge fans. Some people are a little bit less so, uh, but they do have kind of limited roles. They're really effective in local anesthetic toxicities. Non-hydropyridine calcium channel blockers is one where they're a little bit more controversial, um, but for those lipophilic calcium channel blockers in a patient who's cardiac arresting, uh, they're one of the first things you do because your patient's already dead, right? Like, um, and so pushing, um, you know, 1.5 mLs per kg of 20% um, fat emulsion you know, pretty rapidly uh, it is something that can be a big game changer for some of those people. Um, <clears throat> because if they, you know, a lot of calcium channel overdoses that are bad enough that they rapidly progress to cardiac arrest, getting them back can be yeah, challenge. a challenge. Ch challenge <laughs> we'll say that again, a challenge. So a lot of these people just die. So um, lipids, a lipid emulsion is something that has kind of been recommended in the past. It's not something that you do easily. It's not something you do necessarily lightly. Um, and it may not, but you know, it's one of those, the patient's gonna live or they're gonna die based on what you, or the choices that you make uh, sometimes. And so why not? So we, you know, we will call for fat emulsion um, and, and push it. And then it's a push dose and then it's an infusion after that. Um, and then, and those are typically when we start talking about this lipid stuff, it's usually not available easily in the ER. And so it's centers. definitely not going to be sitting in your D bolt. Yep. Uh, then, there are, well, there are a few exceptions. So if you actually yeah. look at Highland, California, for example, they have a really robust nerve block in the ER kind of setup. Uh, and so they actually keep lipid emulsion right. in their ER because of the risk of local anesthetic toxicity and how effective lipids are at uh, reversal of that. Um, you don't keep a ton of it, um, but you keep enough to at least treat one or two people. Uh, and it's just fat, like it looks like milk. Uh, and you know, at many centers, you have tons of it because you got patients on TPN uh, and those types of things, parenteral nutrition. So a lot of lipids there, but you got to call. I know so, in the military setting, you know, our dosing is, is very similar to tox. Um, for like these medications because we carry a lot of patients with blocks, nerve blocks with yeah, patients with amputations and such. Um, so the 1.5 and you, you can repeat again at 0.75 and then of course the infusion. Yeah. So you think about that for an adult, you have to carry a liter. Yeah, it's a lot. One. Number two, the, the challenge in a transport setting, um, like for us to carry it, you, you have to, it has to be climate controlled. 
Yeah. So they, they all come inside of a, a wrapper, an external wrapper with a temperature indicator in it. And if it exceeds more than like 85 degrees, that thing pops yeah. a dark tar colored and you're not supposed to administer it. So and this is not something that's going to be out in the community um, transport arena. It's going yeah. to be at, at hospitals and centers. And again, for these patients, like the the patient you're giving lipids to for calcium channel blockers is the one who's arresting. So in theory, if you're doing this right, yeah. you should never be driving somebody who started at a place with a pulse and no longer has one. Like So don't put coding patients in the back of your ambulance. Don't put Agreed. coding patients in the helicopter ever. Uh, it, this is a conversation I have a lot, it seems like, unfortunately, uh, reminding people you cannot transport that patient. Sometimes with, you know, I've had to have that conversation with docs that air care is refusing to transport a patient because they know you don't put somebody without a pulse in the back of the helicopter. Uh, and they'll, the doc will be like hollering, you know, because they want the patient out of there. You know, the patient's going to die if they don't go to, you know, the patient's dead. So like try to fix the patient, but they're not going to survive in the helicopter any better than they're going to survive on the ground. And so like, you shouldn't have to be doing the push dose for this. You should only ever be doing the infusion part of it. Um, and, and so the hope is, you know, it, unless your rig, unless it's winter and you, you're heating the back of your rig, you really shouldn't t deal too much with the overheating. Um, and if you're flying at 10,000 feet, it's not that warm in the helicopter either. Except for in August in Mississippi. Except for in August in the summer when the sun's shining right through that big old glass window. Um, so it's usually not too big of an issue. But the ultimate kind of piece of that is, uh, you know, you do what you can. And so have them push the lipid at the other hospital and then drive. drive. <laughs> so something that uh, came to my mind when I started thinking about a lot of stuff is calcium channel blockers. And honestly, it stemmed from Dr. Marlin's uh, thing yesterday. I was driving home and I was like, so we carry a lipid on the aircraft in a way, propofol. Yeah. So if you've got a calcium channel blocker overdose, it's intubated. Yeah. You're trying to maintain down, yeah. even though it's a small concentration of the lipid. I get it. When you start yeah. talking about how propofol supplied, it's yeah. 100 vial, but it's still at least something. Yeah. And y'all three are sitting here, you give propofol all the time. Do you think that maybe that might help? Or it do you think, or do so, you think that, so it's actually, so the bolus is the piece that matters. Um, the bolus is the piece that matters because what is happening, the theory behind lipid emulsion therapy is you send, there's this lipophilic drug, right? Uh, it is going to naturally get its way into something that's lipophilic. And so you throw the biggest lipid magnet in the IV, in the venous system as you can. So there's this drug that loves fat and you just sent a massive fat wad flying through, it's gonna jump in there and grab it. Um, the premise behind the emulsion uh, infusion is that it sustains that effect, but it can't initiate it because it's a pretty small effect. So like, well, that's what I'm saying. So like, if you're using propofol. In conjunction after you've had the bolus. Oh, I see, yeah. as, a, as a post Not, thing. Yeah. Actually, I don't think that would probably be too big of a deal, but you, I would always worry a little bit about the hypotensive piece of propofol. Um, if that's what you're using to maintain sedation and the patient's tolerating the BP, um, I, it certainly is not hurting anything. Uh, and, you know, is it helping to sustain the, you know, that magnet effect that the body's kind of got going on there? Maybe the literature doesn't really address specifically the rep, like the um, replacement of the emulsion infusion with propofol. Um, but it's not the most unreasonable thing. I think the concentration of lipid and propofol is less than 20%. Uh, and so you'd even be talking about a smaller volume um, you'd have to be talking a larger volume of propofol just to sustain the typical dosing. But it probably isn't that big of a deal because the clinical toxicology recommendations for use of this is usually the 1.5 mLs per kg as a bolus over three minutes, followed by a 0.25 mLs per kg per hour. Mm -hmm. And then after six minutes, you're supposed to try to cut back mm -hmm. to 0 0.025, mm -hmm. which at that point you probably are pretty similar to propofol. Mm -hmm. 
uh, honestly. Uh, so it, I bet it would work. Uh, I don't know that there's any literature that is trying. I'm sure there's not, but it was just a fun calcium channel like, block. But I think that's an interesting thought. If we if we had enough if for a bolus, it. if I had enough for a bolus, and I didn't yeah. have quite enough to do an infusion, yeah. I was going from in Mississippi. We're going from the coast to here, and yeah. it's a two-hour transport. And I didn't. Hey, I'm trying to mitigate. Or yeah, you're already at least give an extra little buffer. Would it, anyway. would it work? I bet it would. Honestly, uh, the premise is pretty minor, uh, or at the very least, it. Unless the patient becomes profoundly hypertensive, I don't think it's hurting anything. Um, and most of these patients, you're intubated and needing to maintain sedation anyway. And so almost everything you're giving short of ketamine is going to be altering that the blood pressure anyway. And so you probably got them on stupid high doses of epi and norepi anyway. Um, I, I bet it would work. Might have to seek out our pharmacist. We'll just have to. We'll just have to. We'll we'll set up a study uh, <laughs> and just target all the cardiac arrest calcium channel blockers and just see if it changes anything. Um, good luck getting that through the IRB. They're, <laughs> they're, not, they're not gonna go. Uh, I'm sure they'll just. It'll glide right. It'll on just through. slide right on through. But um, it's interesting. Y'all. Moving on. So a couple other things that we want to make sure we get to. So yep. Tylenol. It's super common. Uh, whether big, it's unintentional big, dosing or intentional dosing, big deal as far as do you have acetidote and how much does it is and how long is it going to take and all those fun things. Uh, any pearls you all want to make sure we talk about with acetaminophen? So I think you just need to say what you said is that it's super important because it is. Like it's a very common pediatric overdose. It's a, it is the number one cause of adult liver failure, period, by a massive margin. It's greater than 50% of adult liver failure secondary to Tylenol. And the next one is like 17%. So it is absolutely like a huge, huge, huge deal with regards to overdose and toxicity. Uh, so it is super important. But uh, because of that, some people hear that and the first thing they do when they see somebody come in that says they ingested Tylenol is they get a Tylenol level. And it blows my mind. Uh, there is zero utility in a pre four hour Tylenol mm -hmm. level. The, if you are worried that the patient took a super massive dose, you know, something greater than 10 grams in a kid, you know, or something like that. Um, and you just, you're so worried that you need to know so that you can decide whether to treat him, just treat him. It's, it's an acetylcysteine. It's mucomist. Mm -hmm. It's not, yeah. it's not a big deal. Just treat him. It would be better for you to treat them than to, draw a lab that may potentially falsely reassure you uh, and result in you not doing anything for the patient. Um, but a pre four hour level doesn't mean Jack. The RIMAC methionomogram yep. is the standard of care in figuring out when the patient needs to be treated and when the patient doesn't need to be treated. And there's no data pre four hours and there's never been data pre four hours. You're not gonna see all the bump lactates you're not going to see necessarily lfts and all your coags things. should not change anyway for almost a day yep. your lfts take you know if you look at the phases or the you know the stages, stages. of Tylenol toxicity you don't see lft bumps for you know four to six hours so it doesn't matter so there's no point in drawing those things if you worry that the patient took a massive massive overdose that is in the you know greater than 150 milligrams per kg um, or greater than 12 or grams or something, whatever it is you're, you're reading it off of, just treat them. It's an acetylcysteine. Like, it's not a big deal. A lot of people don't um, don't know. You can get mucomest IV. You can give it yeah. You can give it both ways you at the same time. Um, so don't forget to give it appropriately. Give it early. If they are in somebody... It, We've had a couple of cases, I know, in our team in the last couple of years where you're dealing with somebody that's a Tylenol overdose two or three days later. They're sitting in the ICU. Hey, they're not getting any better. We're going progressive liver failure. There was a late presentation to medical to medical care is usually what it is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yes, Brad's like, yep. Everyone I've ever seen was late in the... Um, Treatment liver failure for the most part. There's not a whole lot of different things we're going to do. Norepi works awesome. Um be mindful of ammonia levels, be mindful of all those other fun things that go on. Mindful of the respiratory acidosis component of that. If they are intubated, uh, high rate, low volume, throw arginine in the max. Just try to make sure their minute ventilation is appropriate to get some of that acid off if you can. 
that being said, same thing if you're intubating them prophylactically. There's been a couple of them that are uh, Tylenol overdoses that are from psych histories or intentional overdoses, yeah. and they're combative, and they get intubated for that purpose. 12,505, you ever hear me say that come out of my mouth, and I'm talking about a patient that I did, somebody knocked me upside the head, but make sure you're properly. Yeah, Paul <laughs> would love that. I'm here for um, Make sure you're appropriately managing your minute ventilation to match that and get some of that acid off. Um, another drug I want to make sure we talk about is Benadryl. Can I give you a yeah. fun, another fun little medical history pearl? Has everybody seen the movie Airplane? Yeah. Right? Do you remember the name of the doctor? No. Dr. Rumack. <laughs> because the director or the screenwriter, I can't remember, of the movie Airplane lived right across the street from the Rumack. Oh, wow. Rumack, Matthew Nemigrant. So uh, he couldn't put him in the movie. But he put his character in the movie. Oh, so the doctor on the airplane movie is the Dr. Rumet. That's pretty funny. Uh, Benadryl. Sorry. No, no, you're good. Uh, Benadryl, another super common one. They're little pink pills. Everybody thinks they're Skittles. Um, the Mad Hatter, pediatric. So Brett and I have, we talk about this one a lot um, because it, it's kind of interesting. So it is not. We, we always talk about it as an anticholinergic, right? But it's not technically an anticholinergic. It's an anti-muscarinic. Mm -hmm. So we talked about organophosphates, how they have the muscarinic and the nicotinic because they're a true cholinergic. True anticholinergics would have anti-muscarinic and anti-nicotinic. So Benadryl is an anti-muscarinic for the most part. Um, but I'll tell you what, it can be a bad one um, because everybody thinks it's not that big of a deal, right? And so it's just Benadryl. Super safe. It's super safe. Sleep I got. I mean, if Sam's Club will make a 500-pill tub, it can't be that big of a deal. Yeah, milligram uh, per kilogram, it's safe. It's, it's not a big deal. So, But it really can be. Uh, and so I've seen some pretty terrible toxicities associated with it. Um, this is another one that everybody kind of has their little mnemonic for. Mad as a hatter, dry as a bone, blind as a bat, red as a beat. Um, all of it just kind of say you know they're anticholinergic. These patients tend to be really delirious. Uh, they can be pretty darn combative. They suck to transport unless somebody has decided to take their airway for you. Yep. Um, they tend to resist Ativan a fair bit if they get too um, too much going on. Uh, and so I've seen people use just silly amounts of benzos trying to like calm these patients down. Um, so it can be a pretty tough thing. I've had a few go into cardiac arrest from the sodium channel blockade from the anti-muscarinic piece. Mm -hmm. um, that's a pain in the butt to deal with too. Um, but they can get really, really sick. I don't know why everybody thinks that they're hyper safe. Uh, if anybody's ever seen a paradoxical reaction in a three-month-old that they tried mm. to make quiet on an airplane, like Jeez, just imagine that in a 90-kilo 18-year-old, you're trying to wrestle down to the bed. Uh, it can get... It, it can just suck. The other, the other thing I want to mention, again, interstitial losses, but these patients that dehydrate it's not, they end up in rhabdo a lot. Yeah, these patients end up in rhabdo a lot because they're so combative and fidgety mm -hmm. and fighting, and they just are resisting everything you do. Uh, and so they can get, if you are like a lot of places that they try to physically restrain them, put them in leathers or something, and try to just hyper-sedate them with Ativan, 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 and they find out later that they can't do it and mm -hmm. be successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those patients can get bad liver injury or uh, kidney injury. Um, I've seen CKs in the you know, 60,000, 100,000, greater than whatever your maximum is uh, just from fighting. Um, but it, it can be a pretty tough one. I don't... We don't see as, for whatever reason, we don't see as much of it as a principal overdose here. But where I was in fellowship in the Midwest, Benadryl was one of the most commonly ingested like drugs that we dealt with for intentional overdose to try to kill yourself. I had a girl drink half of one of those Tylenol or one of those Sam's Club tubs uh, and came in and started season within probably 40 seconds of hitting the ER door uh, after punching out one of the techs. It's pretty impressive. The uh, last thing you kind of mentioned, it was sodium channel blocker overdose. Yeah. Um, don't want to make sure we talk about antiarrhythmics. When y'all think of sodium channels, especially in these kids, these are the ones that are going to be VTAC and do all kinds of fun things and polymorphic and um, 
your monitor does little dances that should not be normal. Mm -hmm. Are there things besides, obviously, uh, sodium channel blocker, great, give them sodium. But are there things that you guys worry about, especially with pediatrics, with giving those kinds of things? So a lot of these, you're giving a lot of sodium to overcome it. And so it can create some other issues um, with cerebral edema kind of um, processes, um, or I guess I should say central pontine myelomalysis, whatever. Um, but you're given a lot of sodium. And so sodium bicarb, sodium bicarb, sodium bicarb, sodium bicarb, or if you have it, my personal favorite way to try to do it is hypertonic saline infusion. Um, I'll give them, you know, five mLs per kg over the first 20 minutes, and then I'll put them on an infusion and just like run that junk and get their sodium up to 150 and just try to keep it there. Um, but it can, it, it's better for the heart, but it, you know, having the sodium sitting up that high, um, especially if you have to rapidly change it, uh, in somebody who may have been 131, you know, an hour ago that can do not necessarily great things for the brain. Uh, but you know, shockingly, so does cardiac arrest. So it's kind of, it is what you, it is you get what you get. Um, I find a lot of these, and I don't know about y'all's experience that like defibrillating them seldom fixes anything um, because the cardiac tissue is so disrupted by these antidysrhythmics. It makes um, the battery die faster on the monitors. That's true. Uh, then you don't see the dancing. Mm -hmm. uh, but these tend to be pretty bad. Um, I've seen some pretty rough codes with flaconide overdoses, mm -hmm. um, for example. Um, but you can see pretty huge, huge swings. But getting that getting that QTC closed as fast as you can is the only thing you can do to help. That's the biggest thing to look for is those EKGs. Even though uh, sometimes in a cardiac arrest or in peri arrest, everybody's like, "Oh, EKG is the last thing I want to think about a kid because it's a kid. It's not a STEMI. It's adults. We're all. It's got to be an MI. I got to be an MI. We got to look at it. Looking at the QTC in a kid to say, "Hey, this is really, really big. This is really where I immediately my head automatically goes to sodium. Yeah. Um, as far as a tox thing." How much sodium bicarb are you going to give? Well, I was going to say uh, what he was talking about, you know, with the, their sodium getting up to 150s level. You know, that's something that we had actually transported a, a child that had overdosed on flaconide some years ago. And after we reviewed it with Brett, the kid did fine, but we were kind of digging deeper, you know, well, what, what would we have done if this would have happened? What would we have what we'd done if this would have happened? And, that was what we were concerned about was the increasing sodium. And his thought was, you know, it's a sodium channel blocker uh, that they overdosed on. You could actually give a competing sodium channel blocker like lidocaine to actually compete with that flecainide in hopes of stabilizing their their EKG or stabilizing their, you know, their, it was very interesting to hear him talk. And he talked about that yesterday. That was an interesting thought of, you know, once you start getting to that point of being concerned with hypernatremia, maybe trying something different and like what 155 yeah he said anything greater than 150 to 155 you can consider uh lidocaine was his first line because mm -hmm. it's something we're all familiar with we all have it mm -hmm. try i wouldn't consider uh again this is we're not giving true medical advice here when we're talking about this stuff but consider more <laughs> the infusion than you would the we're, we're talking off a left stream here but consider more of the infusion than you would the push push, push yeah. dose of cardiac sure. thousand percent because if you look at these in the textbooks, one of the things it says is do not give. Yeah. But we're talking about toxicologic emergencies and patients who are breaking. Like if you're just trying to close, if these are situations when when the patient's arresting, right? We're not talking about um, you had a flecainide overdose, the QTC is really long, you gave a bunch of sodium and the QTC is still not closed. I'm greater than 150. Let's just start giving lidocaine. That's not mm -hmm. what we're talking about. You know, Brett's talking about uh, inpatients and extremists who are broken and you can't fix them before you call it done. Consider some alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there is some, there is some stuff out there for those patients that kind of usually they're small case reports or case series where this has been somewhat beneficial. Sometimes it's really just about the pharmacology and thinking about how these all work. This in almost like what we were saying with the propofol, should it work? Probably. Uh, does it? I don't know, technically. Um, but could it work? Could it help? And again, you know, everybody in emergency medicine forever 
and in pre-hospital care has always said, you know, once the patient's dead, you can't make them dead or they're dead. Um, so anything you do that may potentially help may potentially help. And so will it fix it? Who knows, honestly. But is there some small literature out there that says that it might? Yeah. And if the patients are resting and their QTC is so wide that you will never successfully cardiovert them back out, you will never be able to defibrillate them back into a normal sinus rhythm and stay there. And you've you've got their sodium all the way up above 155 at this point. Like, what are you going to do? Might as well just give it a shot, see what happens. I mean, something interesting that Brett brought up yesterday was uh alternative purposes of bicarb so bicarb shortage has been a thing yep. just like everything else in this world with supply stuff mm-hmm. how much or what you can use as a mitigating effect so for us we have access on the airframe and, and all the er is three percent hospital yep. y'all have seven and a half and 21 all, all the yep. 23 and all these other things um for basically it's a two to one so for every 50 cc's of bicarb about 100 cc's or so three percent is the equivalent sodium load so if you ever get in a jam and you at least got three percent hey you can give double whatever you would a bicarb and that give you the same amount of sodium load as far as working on these sodium channel blocker blockade overdoses um y'all got anything else you want to add as far as drugs a lot of the stuff is simple fix but it's yeah. again it boils down to the abc's if you can fix yeah, the airway breathing really- circulation because the polypharmacy stuff is what people ask a lot, and especially if you don't know some of these, going back to that skittle party thing. And this is one of what I said earlier is like, I tell my fellows all the time, toxicology is super easy and also super complicated. Because the ultimate reality is if you're in pre-hospital or if you're in community ER and you just don't know, you just manage. Like if they are in CNS or respiratory depression, take their airway, make sure they're not hypotensive before you do it, or at least as not hypotensive as you can possibly get them. Uh, if they're having a hard time oxygenating, maximize your vent settings. If they're hypotensive, if they have a fluid problem from a circulation standpoint, address their fluid issues, plus or minus um, pressors. Pressure sometimes is a little bit of a harder question when you're dealing with a completely unknown polypharm overdose, because sometimes they can affect things poorly. That's why a lot of times people gravitate towards norepi for the unknown polypharmacy because it doesn't affect the heart. Uh, it just affects the vasculature. And so some there is some benefit to just avoiding touching the heart if you can. Um, but if it doesn't, if they took a bunch or you absolutely can't figure out what it is, it doesn't fit a rhythm, airway breathing circulation, and then get them transported um, in as safe and as a reasonable a way as possible. Um, it's ultimately not any of our jobs, even, you know, and I, like I said, I, I work here, I work at a tertiary quaternary care center. Like it's not ultimately my job to figure out what they ingested. I just treat what I know where to treat, you know, get your EKGs on every single ingestion, get your um, airway breathing circulation under control on every single one of these situations. If their QTC is 600, close that QTC, and, you know, whatever you have to do. Um, you don't need to know absolutely every single one of these and you don't need to know absolutely every single you know antidote that's out there um know how to manage this supportively know to call poison control to notify somebody get a toxicologist if you feel like you need to um but i'll tell you right now like for those unknown polypharmacy overdoses you call poison control you ask to talk to the toxicologist i'll tell you exactly what they say supportive care until we know what it is mm-hmm. like there's nothing else like so that's the ultimate like the most important piece to that is manage the airway, manage the breathing, manage the pressure, and then make sure they're not like about to go into cardiac arrest because their you know, EKG looks like garbage. And everything else is probably something that somebody else can deal with. Um, you know, in ATLS, they teach all the time, if you cannot definitively manage the patient, don't keep playing with the patient. Don't do CT scans, don't do all those things. Kind of the same thing for a lot of toxicology. If you don't have a clue what you're dealing with, you know that you cannot ultimately be the tertiary place that is ultimately managing this get all those other things under control and get them out of there. You don't need to wait for their urine drug screen. I was, about to say, I was just about to say UDS. You don't don't bring a UDS into <laughs> You don't need to tell me, you know, any of those other things. You just need to control the airway breathing circulation, get an EKG and stabilize them as best you can and set up for transport. Well, and it, Paul brought it up yesterday. We were sitting there in a conversation about how UDS can be a false positive. It is absolutely so, a wasted test. It literally means nothing outside of a legal stuff. Um, which we are doctors and paramedics and people that are treating patients. 
So we are not under any legal obligation to participate in the forensic gathering of evidence. So we should not be doing urine drug screens for police purposes. That's for the police to deal with. Um, so it doesn't affect you from that side of things. And there are very few circumstances where knowing the fact that it was X drug will dramatically change your management in the emergency setting from supportive care stuff. So there's almost never a circumstance where a urine drug screen is truly, truly, truly a game-changing clinical practice change. So I, I don't ultimately care uh, what your urine drug screen is. And most toxicologists would tell you the same thing. And yeah, the list of things that can false positive on a UDS is impressive. Right. Well, Butrin um, is one of the ones. That one of the stupidest ones. Your bar will come back positive if you've recently taken Motrin. Yeah. Like, it, and, and all of these are like, and it's, they're all enzyme specific. So whatever your different assay is that you're using has a whole, if you go to their company and you request information, they'll give you a whole list of things that test positive mm -hmm. on their particular mm -hmm. assay. But like, it doesn't mean anything. There are so many things that test positive on those. And so I don't, I don't, I don't want to know like what your urine drug screen came back yeah. as. Don't make the patient sit in your ER and wait uh, until their UDS comes back because nobody, nobody ultimately cares. That, I love that you, you kind of summed that up like that because I tell when we have new people, I tell them all the time, with just about anything, don't get too far in the weeds yeah. with your patients. No matter what it is, you know, treat what you know how to treat, treat what's in front of you, but don't don't overthink it a lot of times and yeah. don't get in the weeds. You know? And yeah. tox is one of those subjects that's easy to do. A hundred percent. Oh God, yes. I mean, we talk a lot when we do when we teach toxicology and when we do board stuff for it, we're talking about PKs and we're talking about um, modes of elimination and half-lives and all that stuff. And yes, can you get into all that? Sure. And at high level, like some sort of quaternary institution, does that probably matter for somebody not in the immediate setting? Like, yeah, absolutely. Like probably the PICU cares. Um, but like, if you're emergency in medicine, ER, if you're in most ERs, like you honestly don't care about that information. Mm -hmm. um, like I, I get ragged on a lot because I very seldom will call the toxicologist. Not because I don't think they're smarter than me because they are. And not because I don't think they know more about these drugs than me because I do. But I know that in the emergency department, it doesn't change my management. Right. You know, much of the time um, I'm going to be doing supportive care and admitting to the hospital. And the upstairs people can call the toxicologist because it might matter to them. Mm -hmm. But in the emergency care setting, um, a lot of your management is supportive, um, especially for those unclear polyform things. It's supportive, supportive, supportive. Now there are, like we talked about, some of those specific environmental things where if you don't do things right from the get-go, like things can get hairy. Um, and if you have a decompensating patient, then you should always call for backup for people that know what they're doing. Um, but if you can stabilize, stabilize and GTFO, you know, like. I think, I, I think you're right. I mean, the biggest thing to me is don't wait to start to have your patient fully stabilized before yeah. you arrange for treatment. To me, you need to be aggressive with, hey, let's go ahead and try to find some transport now. It, you know, it may be an hour or two hours before you can get an ambulance, you know. Does this patient need to go by air? How quick can we get somebody here? You know, what is the minimum amount of stabilization we need to get done so that we can get them out of here and get them to, to your point, yeah. to that tertiary center that needs to receive them? I love the phone call from somebody out in the state that's like, I'm dealing with this. They're sick as, you know, whatever word they choose to use um, on my recorded line. And, uh, and I'm working on stabilizing them, but I need a helicopter. And I'm like, yeah, they'll, we're going to start flying in that direction. And I know that they're not going to scoop it. Y'all aren't going to scoop and run. Mm -hmm. You're going to stabilize the patient. But like, sometimes it takes a minute to set up stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I would rather you not wait until, you know, wait on that organ, on that organophosphate, <laughs> yeah. like hydrocarbon. Waiting on a chest x-ray and a drug screen. Somebody said, we've been coding for 40 minutes. What else do I do next? I'm like, what the heck? Mm. You know, I understand that, you know, sometimes we get stuck in those situations, but like arrange in that early process and get thinking ahead a little bit. And like, even if you just got to send like the, the tech or the janitor yeah. to like, can you go tell call, them to call a med call call four nine eight four four three six seven and tell the UMC, I need a helicopter. 
and we'll be like, all right, no problem. Yeah. Come up, sum up a little few things with Cox real fast. Biggest thing is decon. Make sure you're safe. Make sure the patient's safe. Make sure the downstream care team is safe. And then supportive care. I always think ABCs. There's a whole bunch of stuff we talked about today that's super high speed, super down in the weeds, super left field, uh, if you will. But always look at your patient, treat your patient, reassess your patient. You should be good to go. Don't get in the weeds. Don't get in the weeds. <laughs> but do reassess. Reassess. <laughs> but do reassess. <laughs> Nothing makes me more concerned than somebody comes in. They slept the whole way here. Like, oh, God. <laughs> All right, guys. Appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.